Acts chapter 4, we're going to be reading from verses 8 through 13 here in just a few minutes as we start this new sermon series titled, I'm Not Blank Enough, and I'll explain some more about that here in just a little bit. Uh, Today's message is going to be, I'm Not Smart Enough, but I want to encourage you to uh, follow along in your Bibles, uh, get your Bibles, and and, uh, we'll have some of the references up here, but we want you to look them up. Uh, some of them, uh, look them up yourself and stay engaged rather than just sit there and listening to me. I think that we'll all get more out of it if we can stay engaged with uh, with God's Word. You can also follow along on version if you prefer to do that and, and follow on your smartphone uh, or tablet. And, and, and all the scriptures will be right there and uh, maybe save a little bit, bit of time if you prefer to do that. But we're going to be reading in Acts chapter 4 this morning as we start this new series titled, I'm Not Blank Enough. And what this series is about is if if you've ever struggled with feelings of inferiority, then this series is for you. If you've ever thought, I don't think I'm ever going to have the breakthrough in my life that I really need, the one I've been wanting, I don't think it's going to happen, then this series is for you. If you've ever convinced yourself that you don't have what it takes to be successful whether at your job or be successful in a relationship or to be successful uh, at at your, um, just whatever it might be, you know, uh, as a parent or as a student, whatever it might be. I don't think think I'm going to make, I don't think I'm going to make this. I don't think I'm going to make it. Then this series is for you because in this series, this five-part series, we're going to learn from Scripture how to handle feelings of inferiority about our intelligence, about our appearance, about our talents and skills, our lack of talents and skills, about our lack of discipline, and about our spiritual life. And so I I encourage you to be here for each week of this series. And today we're going to start talking about, uh, I'm not smart enough. I'm not smart enough. Have you ever said to yourself, I'm so dumb? Or maybe that word that kids aren't allowed to say, I'm so stupid. How, can, how could I have done that? Or how could I have said that? I've, I've had those thoughts. I've had those thoughts. I've, I've had thoughts like, um, uh, what, what kind of a husband am I? Or I've even thought, what kind, of a, what kind of a dad am I? Oh, here's one. I've had thoughts like, what kind of a pastor am I? This church needs a good pastor. What kind of pastor am I? I think we all have moments of doubt in our ability to understand and to, or to accomplish something because we feel that we're just not smart enough. And so we're going to look at a, at a story today in the book of Acts chapter 4. And let me give you a little bit of background before we read from Acts 4.8. Peter and John, this, this took place after the resurrection of Jesus and after Jesus ascended back into heaven. Peter and John were, were going to the temple one morning to pray. And they encountered a man there at the gate called Beautiful who was, uh, who was a, a lame beggar. And uh, he was begging for money. Well, they didn't give him money, but they prayed for him and he was healed, completely healed and so when this happened, obviously, it drew a crowd. People realized what had happened. It got their attention. A crowd formed, and, uh, and it's a immediate congregation. So Peter began to tell them 
about Jesus, a Jesus who had just healed this lame beggar. And so he spoke to them about Jesus. Many people heard this and believed. They became followers of Jesus. In fact, the Bible says that the number of Christians at that point grew to about 5,000 people. So this is quite significant. Probably 5,000 men is what it means. Because at, at, at that time, the women weren't counted or children weren't counted as well. So if it was 5,000 men, you know, we, we may have been talking about 10,000 people or maybe even 15,000 people. And so these were uh, the people that began to follow Jesus that formed that early uh, church. And in a city of uh, roughly you know, 25 to 40,000 people, Jerusalem was not that big. And so can you imagine in a city of, say, 40,000 people, uh, all of a sudden 10,000 or 15,000 have started to follow Jesus. I mean, that's going to create a buzz. And it did create a buzz. And so the religious leaders of the, of the day didn't like what was happening. I mean, here they thought they had gotten rid of Jesus. And then he came back to life. Now he's gone. But now Peter and John are talking about Jesus. And they're talking about the resurrection of the dead. And so they didn't like all this. And so they had... Peter and John arrested. Now they had nothing to charge them with. They had committed no crime. So they just tried to intimidate them into being quiet and to not preaching about Jesus anymore. They just tried to, it really what this was, was harassment. And so they tried to stop him. In fact, they asked him this question. They, they asked Peter and John, by what power or by what name did you heal this man? Speaking of the lame beggar. By what power or what, by what name did you heal this man? So here is Peter's response. If you go with me to Acts 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is a stone you builders rejected, which, which has become the cornerstone. And notice how plainly and boldly they proclaim this. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now look at verse 13. And verse 13 is what I want us to focus on right now. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They were unschooled and ordinary men. Now, what does this mean? This is the way the religious leaders saw them. And it was actually an accurate perception, an accurate description of these men. They were unschooled and ordinary men. And uh, so I looked up these words, wanting to, to learn what, what does this mean, that they were unschooled and ordinary. Let's look at these two words. First, let's look at the word unschooled. Here's what it is in, in the Greek. Okay, this is the Greek. Okay, everybody say this with me. Ready? go. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to say that either. But I do know that it's, uh, the word is agramatos, and it, it's defined as without learning, unlettered, lacking formal education in the Hebrew writings. 
Right? So, and I'll explain what that means here in just a little bit. So they were unlettered. They didn't have the, you know, the, the, the scholarship. They didn't have the, ed- the formal education in the Hebrew writings. Then I looked up what the word that, that's translated as ordinary in the NIV. I looked that up. And here's what ordinary means. Look at this. I thought I did a double take. Ido- uh, uh, idiotes. What does that look like? <laughs> idiotes. Now I did. Uh, so it means to be unskilled, an unskilled person lacking expertise. And, and you know, I, I, I dug a little bit more into that. And that is where we get our word idiot. But the meaning, is, uh, the meaning has changed. Back then it didn't mean idiot like it means today. Right? That's not a compliment when you call somebody an idiot. And, uh, but back then it just means somebody who was unskilled. And eventually it kind of it morphed into the, the current meaning. But it's just somebody who is unskilled. Somebody who, who lacks expertise and lacks skill. So that's the way they saw them. And that's the way in fact that, that Peter and John were. They were unschooled and ordinary. Now I'm not trying to say that they were dumb. They certainly weren't idiots. And I'm not saying they were dumb, they, but they probably had reason to feel inferior to the men to whom they were talking. They were talking to religious leaders, talking to men who were, who were schooled, men who were educated, men who were not idiotes. They were talking to very educated men, and they probably had a reason to feel inferior to them, uh, had a reason to feel like they weren't smart enough to be successful. And I'll explain that again here just a little bit. They were schooled, unschooled rather, and ordinary men. Now here, here's the explanation I've been telling you I'm going to give you. As Jewish boys were growing up, all, all the Jewish boys would have had an opportunity to receive the same education that these Jewish leaders, religious leaders they were talking to, they were confronting, had received. But they, Peter and John didn't receive the same education they had received because basically they didn't make the cut. Because from the time that Jewish boys were born, you know, by the time they were, say, five years old, Jewish boys wanted to be rabbis. That was, that was kind of the goal, to become a rabbi. But at the age of 10, between the ages of 10, I'm sorry, ages of 5 to 10, between the ages of 5 to 10, they would go to Bet Safar. Uh, or Sefer. Bet Sefer was uh, it's called the House of the Book. It was a school where their education focused on memorizing the Torah. Now, if you know anything about the Torah, you know it's the first five books of the Old Testament. And imagine memorizing, uh, completely memorizing these five books. We're talking about this much. Now, this is really small print. Okay? I haven't graduated to the large print yet. But think about memorizing every word of the Torah. That was what they did. That was what the, the boys ages 5 to 10 at this Bet Sefer uh, school would do. They memorized the Torah. Then between the ages of 10 and 15, the, the best uh, of the students who had been at Bet Sefer would continue with their education and their training to be rabbis. And they would go to a school called the, the House of Learning, uh, Bet Talmud. The Bet Talmud, they would memorize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. That's a lot of learning. That's a lot of memorizing. That's a lot of work. But they would do that. And the boys who weren't able to do that, the boys who didn't make the cut, 
then go back to their families and start learning the family trade. Whatever it might be. Carpentry. Fishing. Whatever it might be. They'd go back and just kind of fall back to the family trade because they didn't make the cut. Then at age 15, those that made that cut would apply to become a disciple of a rabbi. They would pick out a rabbi and they would say, I want to be his disciple. They'd go uh, talk to the rabbi. The rabbi would, would basically interview the boys, the applicants, evaluate them onto, uh, as to whether they had what it took to become a rabbi. And only the best of the best of the best would be accepted as a disciple of that rabbi. The best of the best of the best. The rest of the boys, the ones that missed the cut, at this point would go home and they'd learn their father's trade. They'd learn their family trade. Now Peter and John were fishermen. What does that mean? That means they didn't make the cut. That means somewhere along the way, they were disqualified. Somewhere along the way, they were, they were cut. They didn't make the next advancement. They weren't the best of the best of the best that were chosen by that rabbi. They weren't even the best of the best. They may not have been the best. They were unschooled and ordinary. And certainly after Jesus was crucified, they felt unschooled and ordinary because the Bible tells us that they went after Jesus was crucified. In fact, Jesus was already alive. They didn't know it. They thought he was still dead. And they went back to their trade. They went back to their family trade. The same thing they had fallen back to when they didn't make the cut in school. Peter returned to fishing. And the Bible says that the few of the disciples went with him, including John. He's one of the ones that went fishing with him. They were thinking, it's over. Our dream of following Jesus is over. He fooled us. We thought he was a Messiah. And so they went back to, fi- they went back to fishing. They were feeling defeated. They didn't know that that Jesus had already risen from the dead. And they certainly weren't even expecting Him to rise from the dead. Jesus had told them. He had prophesied. But they didn't believe Him. They didn't understand, rather. And so they weren't expecting Him. In fact, when uh, expecting Him to rise from the dead. When the women came and told, uh, told the disciples, Someone has stolen His body. Speaking of Jesus. Because they had gone to the tomb. Someone has stolen His body. They didn't say... Oh, he must have risen from the dead. No. They ran back and they saw the tomb was empty. They still didn't assume or believe that Jesus was alive. That, that wasn't in their thinking. They were, they were down. They were defeated. And so, they, you know, they had placed, all they knew is that they had placed their trust in Jesus. And as far as they knew, he was dead. And they probably felt like fools because we put our trust in Jesus and now, now he's dead. So they, they would have felt at that point inferior, defeated. Once again, we didn't make the cut. We thought this rabbi, Jesus, we thought he was the one. We didn't get chosen by rabbis in school, but we thought, oh, Jesus chose us. Now he's dead. Once again, we missed the cut. But things began to turn around for them when they had gone fishing and uh, Jesus appeared to them. And he cooked breakfast for them. He cooked the fish they had caught. And then Jesus reinstated Peter. Because remember Peter had denied Jesus three times. After Jesus was arrested. And uh, so he, he reinstated Peter. And after Jesus ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit came. 
and filled the disciples with power. And they became completely different men. So now we see Peter and John, these unschooled and ordinary men, preaching boldly to the men who had just had Jesus killed. These men, they would have killed Peter and John too. They weren't afraid of of doing that. They weren't afraid of Peter and John. They were afraid of the people to a certain extent. But they had Jesus killed. They would have had Peter and John, his disciples killed. So they were fearless. The religious leaders were. But so were Peter and John. The same Peter and John who had scattered when Jesus was arrested. These uneducated fishermen who hadn't made the cut in school stood confidently and they spoke truth to the religious and political leaders, to the intellectually elite of the day. And this dramatic turnaround, this dramatic turnaround was noticed by the religious leaders. That's what they said, right? verse 13 says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now, for anyone here today, for anybody watching on Facebook, for anybody listening to this podcast that feels underqualified, you feel unprepared, you feel like you're in over your head, this story of Peter and John offers hope. I know that it offers me hope. It offers me a lot of hope. Because here's, here's the big idea of what I want to I finish talking to you about and what I'm talking about right now. It's this. It's not education, wealth, position, or even political influence that makes us competent or that qualifies us to do great things. But rather, it's the time spent with Jesus. It's a time spent with Jesus that will lift us out of our feelings of inferiority and prepares us to do great things for God. They noticed that Peter and John were unschooled and ordinary, but they had been with Jesus. They had spent time with Jesus. And when you spend time with Jesus, people notice. When you spend time with Jesus, you overcome those feelings of failure, of inferiority. You overcome those feelings of being in over your head, of being underprepared or, or being uh, underqualified uh, because you spend time with Jesus and that makes all the difference in the world. Being with Jesus is what changed Peter and John. It wasn't that they went back to school and got educated some more. It wasn't they got smarter or they got stronger or otherwise got better. What changed their insecurities into courage and boldness was that they had spent time with Jesus. Proverbs 9.10 says it this way. The fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom. You want to you wanna have wisdom. You struggle with, I'm just not smart enough. I just don't do well in school. I just, I just, don't, I, I just don't, don't see things the way they need to be seen to be able to make you know, the right judgment at my job or right decisions. i got to lead people or lead my family, and I just can't do that. You, you want to gain wisdom. It starts with God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. True wisdom comes from knowing God. 
And not just knowing God, and certainly not just knowing about God, but knowing God and spending time with God as the disciples did with Jesus. Because without the fear of the Lord, without God in our lives, without us spending time with God, we make decisions that are based on our own faulty human understanding. Without God, we're not smart enough. Without, without God, our human understanding is faulty. In fact, this is why Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek His will in all you do, and He will show you which path to take. He will make your path straight, other versions say. He will show you which path to take. But it starts with trusting in the Lord with all your heart. And don't depend on your own understanding. Because human understanding is, is faulty. So don't try to acquire knowledge apart from God in your life. If you say, I'm not smart enough to do this job. I'm not smart enough to, to lead my family. I'm so dumb. I can't believe I did this. I'm just going to educate myself better. And, and we believe in education. But apart from God, if you try to acquire knowledge apart from God, in your greatest moment of crisis, your human knowledge will let you down. Your human knowledge will mislead you. Your human knowledge will create even a bigger crisis. This is why we need to spend time with God. Isaiah 29, 14 reads like this, The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. This is what... This is what happens. The, the, the wisdom of the, the person who thinks himself to be wise, the wisdom of the person who has educated himself or herself apart from God, eventually will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. So don't rely on human wisdom and understanding. Don't trust in what, simply what you can learn and accomplish. Instead, choose to follow Jesus to know Him, to spend time with Him. That will lift you out of your insecurities and make you competent to accomplish great things for God. So how do we do this? How do we spend time with Jesus? I mean, He's not in the flesh, not here in the flesh, like He was for the disciples. If spending time with Jesus is what changes the unschooled and ordinary into the courageous and bold. How do I do this? Well, the best way to spend time with Jesus is to meet with Him daily in Bible reading and prayer. The best way to spend time with Jesus is to meet with Him daily in Bible reading and prayer. We have the wisdom of God in this book, folks. We have the wisdom of God here. You can, be, you can be mentored by Paul the Apostle when you read his writings. By Jesus himself and the other writers of the scriptures. You can be mentored by their teachings, by the things they discovered. By the things that, that God spoke through them. If you spend time in Bible reading daily and in talking to God to strengthen your soul and to care for your soul. And this spending time with Jesus daily, this personal devotional time, this time with Jesus will become the basis. If you do this, 
on a daily basis will become the basis for everything else you do in serving God. It will form the foundation for the decisions you make about your career, about your relationships, including your marriage. And it, it'll keep you focused on the only one who can give you peace and comfort and strength, direction, wisdom for living. It becomes a foundation of all that you do. And it's how you, it's how you overcome the insecurities in your life. By spending time with Jesus. It's how you overcome the confusion, the depression, the, the things that Satan wants to use in your life to keep you down. Satan doesn't want you to be successful. That's why he says to you, you're nobody, you're dumb, you're stupid, you'll never accomplish anything. And then we accept that. Well, I guess that's true, I'll never accomplish anything. No, that's not true. You can when you spend time with Jesus. That's what turned Peter and John around and the other disciples. And that's what will turn us around. Daily devotions. Meet with Jesus daily. Spend time with Him daily in His Word. Daily devotions are like manna. Remember manna in the Old Testament? Daily devotions are like manna because they sustain us miraculously. They miraculously sustain us just the way that manna sustained the Israelites in the Old Testament. Personal devotions sustain us in a miraculous fashion. Now, you know the story when the Israelites journeyed from Egypt to the promised land. God gave them manna every morning to sustain them. It was like having fresh bread. How many of you like bread? <laughs> I love bread. That's part of my problem. I love bread. But it was like having fresh bread every morning. Not day-old bread. You know, I, I, one of the places I like to eat here in town is, is Jimmy John's. And I, I like their bread. I mean, what can I say? I like their bread. And we've bought, you know, they sell the, they sell the day-old bread. Very cheap. So we'll, sometimes we'll buy the day-old bread. And it's good. But there's nothing like, like fresh bread in the morning, right? And that's what manna is. Uh, and that's what uh, manna was and what daily devotions are for us today. In fact, in Psalm 78, 25, we read that the writer refers to manna as a bread of angels. It's to sustain us, right? The devotions are like manna. This heavenly fresh bread, this manna in the Old Testament, had one notable property, if you remember. And that is that the Israelites couldn't store it up. Remember that? Except for right before the Sabbath. But they couldn't store it up daily. They couldn't rely on leftover manna. They couldn't gather extra manna that morning and, and, and save it, put it away for the next day. They tried it and they would spoil. God was teaching them every morning, you got to go out and get your manna. Every morning and your manna will sustain you. Okay, Don't, don't try to live on day old manna because it's not going to be around. It had to be every morning. They had to gather it fresh every day. Those were God's commands. Like I said, some of the Israelites ignored God's instructions they tried to gather enough for the following day, enough for two days, and their manna became full of maggots. It began to smell. God says, no, every morning you've got to gather the manna. Devotions are like manna. Our time with God and Bible reading and prayer is like manna. We can't store it up. They're only effective if we have devotions daily, regularly. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day 
our daily bread. Our daily bread. God wants us to come to Him each day for what we need that day. He wants us to come to Him each day for what we need that day. He didn't teach us to pray for our weekly bread or our monthly bread or or our uh, yearly bread. We need daily bread. And that's what personal devotions are. When we have daily bread, we're spending time with Jesus every day in Bible reading and prayer. Our lives will be transformed. So how do we do this then? How do we have daily devotions? Let me, let me end with this. Devotions require three practical components. I want to get practical with you this morning. Devotions require three practical components. They require a daily appointment. The Israelites were to collect manna daily. So we need to have a daily appointment. And so I would suggest to you, put it in your calendar. Put it in your calendar. You know, one of, one of the fundamental uh, steps, very first step perhaps, of good time management is to have a calendar and to put things in your calendar. Have only one calendar, not one for work and one for home. But you only have one calendar and you write things in your calendar. You schedule things in your, in your calendar. And you look at your calendar every day. Throughout the day, you, you're checking your calendar so nothing falls through the cracks. And, uh, and now with, with smartphones, you can use your smartphone, put it in your calendar. You can even set reminders. You can set recurring appointments. So why not write down in your calendar, 6 o'clock in the morning, time with Jesus for 15 minutes or 10 minutes or more. Personal devotion, time with Jesus. Put it in your calendar, set an alarm. If it's, if, if it's important, then... Give it that importance, that value by scheduling a daily appointment. Collect manna daily. And then the second practical component is a place of isolation. A place in which you, you can dedicate that, that place. It might just be a, a, a chair where you sit or a chair where you kneel. But that's, that's your place where you set yourself apart for the purpose of spending time with Jesus. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, 6. But when you pray, go into your, into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So God rewards our time in prayer. It, it's not in vain. He rewards our time. But He says, go into your room, close the door. He's saying, isolate yourself. Find a place where you can just spend some time, uninterrupted time, with Jesus. Maybe you have an extra room somewhere. I've heard of people who just go outside when the weather's nice and and there's a spot where they sit on their backyard or somewhere. And and that's that's where they're going to spend their time with Jesus. For years I've heard the story of Susanna Wesley, the the mother of the Wesley uh, brothers, who had several children running around and didn't have a quiet place to have her time with God. And she would just, uh, she would just, bring her apron up over her head and she'd start praying. And the kids knew, if mama has her apron over her head, don't bother her. She's talking to Jesus. She's talking to God. I mean, there's, if there's a will, there's a way. 
And I hope that there's a will today to make a daily appointment and to find a place where you can isolate yourself, even if it's by putting an apron up over your head, so you can spend time with Jesus so your life will be changed. And then the third component is to give Jesus the best time of the day. Jesus would get up very early. Mark 135 says that very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So he prioritized it. Now, some people I know are not morning persons. Some of you may not be morning persons. And you maybe the creative juices just flow late at night. Well, give God that time. Give God the best time of the day. Whatever that is for you, give that to God. If you're very productive in the evening, then give some of that time to God and spend some time with Jesus when you're most productive. But I know people who will get up really early to do other things, maybe get up early to go to the gym to work out, and and that's a noble thing. Take care of your temple. I get that. I know some some runners here in town, a group of runners, and they they get up early. They start their run every morning at 5 o'clock in the morning. And they'll run for about an hour. Then they'll go home and get dressed and start their day. That's daily, daily. And of course on Sundays, which is the long run day, they'll, they'll start a little bit later. They're heathens. They don't go to church, I guess. Because they'll start their long run later and they'll do their, you know, whatever it might be, 8 or 9 or 10 miles. But during the week, they got jobs. But they get up early to go out and run. And, uh, you know, it, it, and maybe you have that kind of, of discipline for other areas. Why don't we use that? To schedule a time, a time with Jesus in a place where we can, we can focus and not be interrupted. And give Jesus the best time of day. If it's in the morning, get up in the morning and give some time to Jesus. Spend time with Him daily. Schedule it. Schedule your alone time with God. You know, the Israelites ate manna for a long time. Forty years. Forty years. They ate manna until they reached their destination. I believe that we are to have devotions, spend time with Jesus until the day that we reach our destination. Until the day that we see Jesus face to face. So we're in this for the long run. Because this is what sustains us. And this is what changes us. This is what causes us to go from unschooled and ordinary to courageous and, and boldly, courageously and boldly proclaiming the truth of God. So you might say, I'm not smart enough. I can't handle my responsibilities at work. I can't finish my school. I can't finish my studies. I can't give my kids good advice. You know, these are all legitimate concerns, but there is an answer. And the answer is spend time with Jesus daily and watch him turn your life around. And so today I'm going to encourage you and challenge you to do that. Now maybe you don't see the, the need or the value in spending time with Jesus. Because maybe even though you made a decision to follow Jesus. At some point you've lost your way and, and your passion is not toward Jesus. But you find yourself struggling anyway. Put two and two together and realize that the struggle comes when we try to do things on our own. And instead, turn to God. Today, turn to God. This is a time to come home. This is a time of surrendering to God and and maybe rededicating our lives to God.
And I'm going to challenge you to do that today. But first, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word today and how exciting it is to read this story and to see how these two men, men who had, had not made the cut to a certain extent in, in school, they weren't dumb, but they hadn't made the, the cut of, of being the best of the best of the best. And every reason, they had every reason to feel inferior. Certainly to feel inferior to the men to which they were testifying of Jesus. Every reason to feel defeated. But God, you turned their lives around. You brought them out of those feelings of insecurity. Out of those feelings in which they had said, I, I give up, I'm going back to my family job. I'm going back to fishing. You brought them out of that into bold men who spoke your word with power and authority. And Lord, you can do the same thing for us today. And so I pray, God, that you would help us as we come to you now, as we respond to you right now, to surrender to you and to determine, I will spend time with Jesus. I will take advantage of the wisdom of God that's found in this book. And I'll spend time with Jesus so my life can be changed. We turn to you now, God.